Guys, I want to thank the sponsors of the podcast. I want to thank GoHunt.com, my friend Cody Nelson, the glassing guru, the optics authority. He's the optics manager at GoHunt.com. If you have any interest in buying optics or have any glassing questions, whether it be tripods, spotting scopes, rifle scopes, range finders, anything to do with glassing, give Cody a call, 702-847-8747, that's extension 2, or you can email him at optics at gohunt.com. You can also send him a text or call him on his cell phone at 602-399-3699. Guys, right now at GoHunt.com Insider, you can take advantage of the free trial. Go to GoHunt.com forward slash Scott. You're going to be able to take advantage of a free trial of the Insider. GoHunt is always adding more value for their Insider members. They've now added real 3D maps as a part of Insider for no additional cost. What an incredible value. Very soon, they're going to have their mobile app up as well. Go to GoHunt.com forward slash Scott and sign up for a free trial. If you're already an Insider member, it's automatically part of your Insider membership. And you can just go to the Maps tab up at the top once you sign in as an Insider. I also want to thank Kuyu Ultralight Hunting. That's the gear that I wear on all of my hunts. To find out more, you can go to KUIU.com, Kuyu.com. They're a direct-to-consumer company. They sell everything off of the Kuyu.com website. I also do a lot of question and answer on my Instagram where I'm answering questions about guys wanting to know about gear about Kuyu, so tune into my Instagram. I want to thank Kuyu for their sponsorship. I also want to thank Phonescope.com. Use the JScott20 promo code. You're going to get a 10% discount on all orders. Again, thanks to all the sponsors of my podcast. Welcome to the J. Scott Outdoors podcast. Today I've got my good friend Russ Jacoby out of Flagstaff, Arizona. Russ, how you doing? Excellent, Jay. Thanks for having me on. Really excited to be here today. Yeah, it's always great having you on the podcast. We've got a lot to catch up with uh, here. We haven't talked in a while and, and a lot's been happening with COVID-19 and drought in Arizona and all kinds of crazy stuff. Uh, but first and foremost, uh, what's been going on with you? Well, uh, here in Arizona, as you as you know, there's a pretty extensive drought. So all of our normal crazy busy has been supplemented by a lot of water hauling. Tell me about that. I saw a, a Instagram post, I believe, or maybe it was Facebook, probably, uh, where you were volunteering your time uh, in your vehicle and stuff for the Arizona Elk Society. It looked like. Yes, sir. So here in Arizona. Uh, we are very busy in our outfitting business, and I still run a family and have a day job. But we strongly believe in giving back to the resource. So when the call comes out, when the agencies are saying we're desperate, we need help, all hands on deck, the Jacobis are one of the first ones to step up and say, what can we do? So Arizona Elk Society probably hauls more water than anyone else. And being here in Flagstaff, we thought that's where we can make the biggest difference. So reached out to them and said, what's the worst this time you got? And we'll make sure it gets full and stays full. So they have amazing resources like their water wagons. You couple that with some of our one-ton diesel trucks, which we're very fond of, and uh, some manpower out of some amazing resources like my son Jacob, and we can fight back on the drought. 
tell me about how that process works, uh, where you pull up, get the water, and then where you have to go. Well, you know me, Jay. I'm an equal opportunity um, engineer. I'll get the water wherever the hell I can get it from. Uh, we do follow applicable laws, local regulations, and work with the agencies on where they want us to pull water from. So our first load was actually hauled from Flagstaff. There's a reclamation plant here where we get our water from. And the AES actually has an account that provided that water. But as you can imagine, hauling 12,000 pounds of water from Flagstaff to Tucson um, uh, consumes some resources. So if we can grab it closer, that's certainly a good thing. There are some sources there in Tucson um, with some reclaimed water that we use. And so our subsequent loads on some days were coming out of Tucson. But we had a mixture of multiple loads from Flagstaff and also loads from Tucson. To volunteer with the Arizona Elk Society, you contact the office. Uh, you know, this is 2020, so the lawyers needed you to fill out all kinds of paperwork. Uh, they still don't require a blood sample, but pretty much everything but a blood sample Proctology is exam. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but no, it's not that bad. You get approved, and then you go forth and haul water. The, there's a desperate need there, and certainly anyone can haul water and put it where it needs to go. I'm happy to be a resource to get people connected with the right folks. Um, but you can reach out to your local game and fish officers. They can also help. And there are some other great agencies. I know the Mule Deer Foundation and some of the other agencies and sportsmen groups here in Arizona can help with that. But we would encourage all your listeners to get involved. If you're further away or maybe your life situation isn't such that you can do the boots on the ground type stuff, um, you're welcome to join us anytime we do it. We'd love to get new people involved in what we're doing. But you can also just support what's happening through a financial donation. Uh, on the Facebook pages for all the organizations, there's uh, tabs where you can link in there and donate money. And we're proud to say that when we're hauling, those Facebook posts generate a ton of revenue because we're putting those pictures up there and challenging people to contribute. And it's always good to see people volunteering to haul water, but also the ones that are uh, ping in the account and putting money in it so that there's the funds to make those things happen. Russ, from a, a actual logistics standpoint, so you get the water and then you pull up to these, I'm assuming these Arizona Game and Fish drinkers, and are you filling the actual storage tank or are you actually pulling it, pouring it into the receptacle where the the actual animals uh, drink and then it and then it backfills? The, how, how does it work? It depends on the systems. Um, you know, some of our older systems have float valves. And so if you put it into the trough, it won't make it back into the t holding storage. Um, there are some where you could put it into holding storage and it'll flow through. The one that you saw on that Facebook post, there's no float. So the level in the tank and the level in the drinker are the same, which is a better system than systems that have floats. So we can actually put it in either. And in those Facebook posts, if you look at them closely, you'll see we're doing both at the same time. We would take one tank, because we're hauling two tanks. We take one tank into the, the storage vessel, and the second tank we're pouring it in the drinker, and then the water levels equalize. Tell me about, are there animals literally waiting there? Like they watch you drive up and they, they need a drink so bad that they're waiting there? Or what kind of reports are you getting from the time that you fill the water till, you know, that the animals immediately get some relief? 
So there's some of that. You know, we try to not let it get that desperate where they're standing there with their tongue hanging out waiting for you, but that certainly can happen. Um, I don't know of any reports of lost animals, but I do know there's a lot of animals traveling great distances and very stressed trying to get to water right now. If you go to any of these water catchments, um, I'll call it a sidewalk, there are hammered trails more extensive than you could possibly imagine leading from their bedding and, and feeding areas to the tanks. Um, when we're coming in and out, within a mile of the catchments, there's large numbers of animals that are hanging close to those areas, which makes it easier for predation to happen. So the more volunteers we get, the more water we haul, the less stress there is on the animals and the less likely they are to suffer predation that's not natural. I would also like to point out, it's not just our large ungulates that are benefiting. Um, people will comment on our posts, there were bats. I actually had a bat flying to the back of my head trying to get to water when we're filling the tank in the dark. Um, there's squirrels and tarantulas and bees and every other critter out there in the woods that birds. are benefiting from it. Birds. There's lots of birds. Yeah. yeah. We, we were making friends with lots of Tweety birds. Um, and we're, you know, Arizona Elk Society primarily does, you know, country where there's elk, but is there also a need in some of the, you know, let's say non-elk areas as well? If you're in Arizona, there's a need. And, um, and compare that drought that we're in right now to, you know, being a longtime resident, you know, are we O2 status? What, what, what would you compare it to? Worst I've ever seen. Okay. And I've been in Arizona long enough to know. So we obviously spend a lot of time on the Kaibab with bison, and I've never seen it like this before. It's the worst I've ever seen. In regards to bison, um, you're, you're known throughout the state and, you know, all over the Southwest as the renowned buffalo guy and guide outfitter on the Kaibab Plateau. Um, let's talk a little bit about the buffalo. Um, I, I know we've got a draw coming up, uh, the bison coming up or excuse me, the bison draw coming up. Let's talk about the bison on the Kaibab and the conditions, the state that they're in, et cetera. Well, it's never a better time to be a bison in Arizona. I think our population is an all-time high, which is good and bad for bison. Unfortunately, with the current regulations in the Grand Canyon National Park, that area is close to hunting. And as such, bison are quite intelligent. They've learned that if they're there, they're safe. So they've predisposed to going in the park and staying there. And that causes a disproportionate use of resources and the park service would like to reduce their numbers. So there's been an environmental impact assessment and they're working hard to try to reduce the numbers. We certainly are doing everything we can on the Kaibab National Forest where we can legally hunt them to reduce the numbers. But unfortunately, there's just not enough bison available to impact the population in a way that needs to happen. So to combat that, the Park Service has done captures the last two years where they actually capture live bison and relocate them to other places. Last year, there was roughly 30 bison that left the plateau and went to uh, Indian tribe in the Midwest. And this year, there was roughly 60 bison that left, um, left the plateau and went a little further north than that. Uh, but those numbers don't even keep up with the current growth rate of the herd each year. So this next year, the Park Service has recently announced um, that they're working with the Game and Fish Department to come up with a volunteer culling program inside the park. 
And my phone is blowing up with people going, how do I apply? When does it happen? And all those other details. Those details haven't even been decided by the agencies yet. They're working on that. So it's not time to sharpen your knives just yet. But uh, there should be some form of lethal removal inside the Grand Canyon Park within the next year or two. And those, uh, those lethal removals are intended, obviously, to reduce spice in numbers. But the other thing that that does is hopefully um, removes that safe haven where bison don't feel quite as safe in the park. And hopefully that they'll come off the park more and provide more sport hunting opportunities. Well, that's very, very good news because I know in years past when I've had you on the podcast, there was some talk about, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but basically just shooting them and letting them lay and letting the meat go to waste. Uh, maybe I'm wrong on that, but it seems like allowing for a sport, opp- uh, you know, hunting opportunity or even even a culling opportunity is, is, is better than the alternative. Yeah, so there's been lots of things talked about in the past. I I don't know that we were ever looking or that they were looking at just a shoot and lay type situation, but certainly a situation where uh, bison are encouraged to to leave the park and consume resources off the park is beneficial to the park, but it's also beneficial to sports hunters that would hunt adjacent to the park, which is what we do today. If we had them off the park in greater areas and greater numbers, it would increase the opportunity, and those tags are quite sought after. Um, sportsmen are ready, willing, and able to harvest bison if given the opportunity. Russ, you've been you know, a, a professional guide for a long time, but you've really focused one of your biggest passions is bison and you've taken and helped hundreds of people with bison but recently you have changed your guide service name Uh, tell us a little bit about your guide service name uh and your proceeding from here uh you know what's what's your game plan so we've incorporated uh as we've grown there's the need to, to protect our assets um you know i'm proud to say that we've never had a a negative consequence to a hunter while in the field, but uh, it's just wise business practices to to pursue that. We're very professional, and you know we don't do anything that would endanger folks. But in today's litigant happy society, you have to protect yourself. So we're fully incorporated under Adapt Adventures. Um, we're licensed, permitted, and insured here in Arizona, and we have full control of the integrity of our operations. And uh, these changes are meant to um, really take advantage of the reputation that we've built and the expertise that we've built. We also are branching out into some other opportunities. As a longtime Arizona resident, one of the advantages of Arizona is we have some really cool trophy animals. Um, That's the positive side of the coin. But there's always another side of the coin. And Jay, can you tell me what the challenge is in Arizona? As far as what? Uh, Securing a permit, maybe? (laughs) Yeah, drawing. Yeah, so how long does it take to draw one of the better hunts in Arizona? I mean, we're talking 10, 15, 20 years. So I have this ready pool of hunters that have hunted with us, had an amazing experience, and kind of a game changer for them from other experiences they might have had in the past. And they're like, we want to do that again. And when you tell a hunter, okay, 15 years from now, we can do this again, it kind of sucks. Kind of lets the air out of them, doesn't it? It does. So we're trying to provide an opportunity where folks can go somewhere amazing 
and have that same kind of world-class experience, but do it every year or every couple years and not have to wait 15 or 20 years for the permit. So we looked at what's out there and what's currently being done. And we feel like there's a really good opportunity to offer our brand of hunts in Alaska. So wow. we are going to be offering hunts in Alaska in the very near future. That's incredible. So tell me about that. That That's unreal. Well, uh, as you know, my lovely wife, Laura, is uh, not too bright because, number one, she married me. She had a weak and moment. Uh, but she stays by my side and she lets me do whatever crazy thing I dream up. And, um, I was always afraid to go to Alaska because I thought I would never return. And I certainly enjoy and love our opportunities, um, for what we've done as a family in Alaska. And what we're trying to do is provide those same type of world-class experiences, um, for our friends that have hunted with us in the past and also for a new group of hunters that choose to hunt with us in the future. So, we're trying to provide um, the same type of guided, outfitted, and DIY-assisted hunts that we've done in Arizona um, in a new location. So are there specific animals or hunts that you will be focusing on initially and then branching into others? Or will you open up you know, wide open with a full array of, of animals? Well, we're certainly going to do a full array of animals, um, but there will be some things that we specialize in right out of the gate, and you can look for announcements about that in the coming months. We are working on purchasing a lodge there, which will give us a base of operations, and you know, Alaska is a little different than Arizona. In Arizona, you take a test and get some paperwork done, and they sprinkle you with holy water, and you're a guide. Um, in Alaska, it's a more involved process. Uh, there's some more rules and regulations, which I think are good. Um, and Alaska is a more dangerous place. The game is more dangerous, and they need uh, more training and more um, oversight to make sure that that happens safely. So we're partnering initially with some existing operations, and then we will grow from there. Safe to say Russ Jacoby will be flying a bush plane sometime soon? Yeah, we are in the process of, of getting our training. Um, we'll start off by letting the experts do that, but I'm the kind of person that needs to be able to do every facet of the operation myself. And initially, that's uh, going to be Kaylee. You don't hear about Kaylee as much on the podcast because she's been in college, but her college career is winding down. And she has uh, a lot of passion for the, the aviation segment of our business. So Kaylee is is working on securing that training, and then we will leverage her training to help others. Awesome. Well, that sounds exciting. Well, I look forward to hearing more about that. Um, doubling back to or circling back to the Buffalo with the applications uh, due, I think, next Tuesday. Uh, for those people out there that are interested in applying for Buffalo um, explain how the hunt structures are on this existing application and what you recommend people do uh, as far as applying. Sure. Well, number one, apply. You can't get a permit if you don't apply. There's a couple different permits available on this, uh, this draw cycle. There's a single permit available for a designated bison in the house rock. That hunt is a little different than the other hunts. And I won't go into a lot of detail there other than to say that it it's not in a pen, 
um, but it's not a free-ranging bison in the same way that the rest of the hunts are. Uh, the hunts that most hunters will be interested in are the hunts after that. The first hunt is a hunt that runs from January 1st through early June. And that hunt is the uh, the bull hunt that's known as the trophy bull hunt. There's enough time there that you can have that long experience where you can pass on an animal potentially and hold out for something a little better. The bison hides on the Kaibab are usually good, but they're exceptionally good during the winter. And so it's popular for hunters that are really wanting the best coat of the year. Um, but like we talk about, there's two sides to coins. The other side of the coin for that hunt is that access in that early season is quite challenging. And by quite challenging, imagine many feet of snow and not being able to access it with a pickup truck, which is most hunters chosen method for, for approaching hunts. You'll need some type of a track vehicle to be very successful on that hunt. So hunters that are wanting to apply for that hunt um, need to hire someone like myself that has the track vehicles or have access or use of the track vehicles. I would warn hunters that snowmobiles are not the best machine for those type of hunts. And the reason for that are a, a couple of reasons. One, the distances are are great. It's difficult to transport enough equipment to support that type of a hunt that far from your vehicle with a with a snow machine. It's a lot easier to do with a track vehicle. Uh, the second part of that is there can be times where there's snow and dirt mixture when you get near the bison and the snow machines don't travel on the dirt very well. Our track vehicles can do snow and dirt. And then another part of that is um, just the safety aspect. You know, being that far from your vehicle and um, not having as many resources can be a safety issue. So, if you're going to tackle that early season, you need to understand uh, what you're getting yourself into. There are a few hunters that will choose to wait till the end of the season when the snow breaks up, but that removes a lot of the benefit of that early season. Uh, the second uh, hunt offered there is a multi-week hunt in June, and that makes a great choice for these hunts, and it's very popular with the hunters. One of the advantages of that season is that you can access it with a pickup truck. Um, it's just not quite a long, as long a season, obviously, as that first hunt. As you get later in the year, there begins to be bull and cow hunts um, that change over as you get into August. Uh, there is one cow hunt issued in this draw cycle. After this draw cycle, the hunts will switch over historically to just cow hunts. And so for hunters that um, don't care about gender, there certainly are better draw odds on most of the cow hunts. But you can apply twice a year in Arizona, so it's a good idea to apply each and every time. And if there's a type of hunt that you're interested in, apply for a permit. If not, apply for that preference point. Good stuff. Um, and how many tags roughly are there? I mean, are there hundreds? How many tags there, in this draw cycle? So this draw cycle will have the 25 on the early season, and then there's 10 to 12 on the other seasons, depending on which season you're talking about. And there's three of those. So, you know, you're 60-ish tags, something like that. Um, and then uh, as you get later in the year, those hunts will pick up again. So by the end of the year, there's over 100 permits available. Over the years doing it so much, how, how much have you learned as far as bison movement and what to do and what not to do and what you've witnessed 
maybe say in some people that maybe don't understand the movement in and out of the park and how, you know, how big of a role does that play in the success of everyone? Um, maybe if you get a one bad group in there that doesn't understand how it, how it works. Well, there's a lot to unpack there, but I'll, I'll see what I can do with that. Um, I read something the other day that said, if you do anything for 10,000 hours or more, that makes you an expert. So I guess I was an expert from bison many years ago. <laughs> so at this point, and it freaks me out a little bit, but I'm treated more like a celebrity and I don't view myself as a celebrity. So that, that feels a little weird to me, but by now we're, we are so good at doing it because we've done it for so long that it's, I don't want to say easy for us, but we understand what you should do in different situations. Um, unfortunately, with an animal that visits the forest where we can legally hunt them, I can't make them come off. I wish I could, but I can't. So what we're doing is providing the hunters the best opportunities we can with our experience. And they certainly are going to have uh, better opportunities with that level of experience than the sheer luck of just trying it on their own without that experience. This hunt is unique and different than other hunts that you might tackle in Arizona because the animals are concentrated along a boundary. I don't know of any other hunt um, like that in Arizona. You know, if you're on a Unit 9 elk hunt and you have a conflict with someone or if there's a hunter acting inappropriately in an area, you can simply move to another area and be successful. You can't really do that here because they, there's no place to move to. Well, you can move, but there's no buffalo there. So we uh, work really hard to try to foster a community where hunters work together, where everyone can have an opportunity. And that's a tough job. You know, not everyone thinks that I'm the best thing since sliced bread. And, and I, that breaks my heart. But at the end of the day, it's a very difficult task to try to provide opportunities for clients and balance the fairness of, um, of those opportunities for the do-it-yourself hunters. And, um, you know, we have hunters that harvest a bison that are frustrated, um, but we also have hunters that don't harvest a bison that are frustrated. And we do what we believe to be the right thing, and we have a good reputation and high integrity in our process. And uh, I wish there was a way to never have those conflicts or those negative uh, experiences, but it kind of is what it is sometimes on the in the forest. I will say that we have much fewer negative experiences than most hunts, which I'm proud of since um, most hunts you can just go someplace else and you can't do that here. Right, right. Makes sense. Um, let's shift gears a little bit. And how did you get out during elk season? And if so, what did you experience out there? Um, I didn't guide any... Uh, hunts during the archery hunt because i had other things i had committed to um but uh the reports from the field was uh, a very slow rut in some areas and then other areas they had good rut action um, from what i'm seeing from the harvest it was an off the chart year as far as horn growth which sounds weird when we just got done talking about uh drought but the drought came after most of the horn growth was accomplished so you had some just really giant bite, um, elk that were harvested this year. So I think you're going to see overall that it's going to be a banner year in Arizona. What about uh, the rest of your fall? How is it shaping up? What's it looking like? 
Well, we've got buffalo hunts that start again on Friday and they go through the end of the year. Um, in addition to that, we'll be doing some sheep hunting. Uh, we do have some late elk hunters um, and some deer permits that we'll be that we'll be working on. So we have a, a nice cross section of different permits that we'll be hunting. Um, we did do antelope hunt uh, earlier in the year. The antelope, I think, were much more impacted by the drought. Uh, you know, you look at guys like Shane Corey. Uh, he did a public post where his hunter turned in their permit this year. When you see a guy like Shane Curry that uh, normally year after year is putting up big goats, um, when you see his hunter turning in a permit because they didn't feel like the uh, the quality of the animals there, that tells you something about the type of drought conditions that we're in. For sure. With that being said, and some of the hunts that still have, you know, are coming up on the schedule, not only for you, but the people listening you know, what would be some of the things that are going through your mind, whether it be a, you know, a deer permit or an elk permit, um, as far as, yes, it's dry and yes, water, but as far as a strategy to be able to, to say, this is, I'm going to focus on this. What, what advice would you give people right now? Adapt. So I'll use the elk hunt as an example. You know, We've all seen the videos where you push your call button and the cow call comes out and, you know, the 450-inch bull attacks you at 10 feet. And, you know, that may be the textbook YouTube thing that happens. But, Jay, you've been around long enough to know that reality is seldom the fairy tale that you see there on the Internet. Um, you have to be able to adapt your hunting techniques to the situation at hand. As a sportsman, I find that just naturally obvious but i don't know that it is for some of my counterparts um as an engineer i'm good at problem solving so when i see a difficult situation or a tactic that's not working i simply change my tactics i got so many text messages for rust the uh, elk aren't bugling i'm like so what go go shoot one well they can't hunt one if they can't push their hoochie mom and get attacked by a bull um adapt your techniques to the situation when it's this dry, animals are coming to water. Now, with hunting pressure, they may be coming nocturnal, but I can't tell you how many trail camera photos I saw of elk hitting water at 10 o'clock or in the morning or at noon, and there's no hunters there. So to a certain extent, really dry conditions and no rut, I'd be licking my lips as I was a hunter with that tag in my pocket. There's other ways to kill an elk besides just having them come to a call. So when you look at deer and antelope and other hunts um, and fall hunts that are coming up, water is a premium certainly now in Arizona, but change your tactic to match the situation. If the animal is fully nocturnal, sitting in water is not going to work. Can you cut them off um, when they're coming to water from their bedding areas? So change your tactic to match the situation. If what you're doing is not successful, change your tactic. That's great advice. Um, I've, had fun uh, following you on your uh, raptor, uh, let's say, uh, passion for raptors, but also you're pretty hepped up about the new Broncos coming out. As a Ford guy, um, tell me about that kind of journey that you've been on with, you know, the raptors. When I first met you, you didn't, I had a raptor, you didn't have a raptor, and then all of a sudden you've got every raptor you know, every year you have a new Raptor, you know, everything there is to know about them. 
which I always say, if you want to know something, just I don't have to research it. Just call Russ. He's already got it all dialed in. But now the Bronco comes out. Um, what are your thoughts on that whole that whole journey that you've been on with Ford? Well, we love our Ford trucks. Anybody that knows us knows that. And you know, we we tease and we jest with the other guys. But there's there's some good trucks um, from the other brands. If you can't get a Ford. <laughs> <laughs> No, we see it as a complete package. So we're able to get our one-ton diesels, which we use for towing and the water hauling. You know, you cannot move the kind of water that we move with a Toyota truck. It just won't do it. And we're not making fun of those trucks. They're just not made for that. There's just no way. It's not going to happen. I could not do what I do with bison and the loads that we move and the water that we move with something besides my diesel trucks. So cannot say enough about the capability of the one-ton diesel trucks. But clearly, a one-ton diesel truck isn't the best for doing high-speed trail camera running or some of the other things that we do. Um, you know, we use the side-by-sides exclusively in the snow. We don't use them for anything else, and that's a personal decision I've made for safety. Um, the safety and comfort of my guides and of my people and our clients is paramount to me. So we've chosen to invest in the Raptor technology from Ford, and um, there are not too many people that ride in that that aren't absolutely blown away by what they can do. Um, we absolutely love our Ford Raptors, and they're not leaving our fleet until something better comes along. But we're able to put hundreds of miles every day on those trucks in a very rough dirt environment and safely and comfortably complete that assignment and the advantage to me as a business owner is my cost of ownership is actually lower, even though the initial purchase price is higher because we do less repairs and less maintenance. We have a higher resale value, but we also are not beating up our people as much. I won't admit this out loud too much, Jay, but I might be middle-aged now. <laughs> and having had two back surgeries, that technology just doesn't beat me up as much. And that's a super big deal for me. Um, I want to be able to do this for as long as I can on this planet, and Raptor technology helps me to do that. Um, Broncos. A Bronco is not a Raptor, at least not yet, although a, a version of that is coming. I'm told that it will be called the Warthog, and people get freaked out by the names, but the names are coming from aircraft, um, the Raptor aircraft and the Warthog aircraft. And if you look that up on the Internet, it's a pretty good marketing scheme. Um you know, an A-10 Warthog, if you're one of the grunts in the ditches, it probably saved your life at some point. And uh, I think that's a great name for the Raptor version of the Bronco. Uh, Broncos, for me, um, fills a niche. I don't always need a pickup truck for some of the things we're doing. And that Bronco is going to let us have that kind of smaller vehicle for certain tight trails and some of the things that we would do there that, that might be a little better suited than a Raptor for certain things. It is going to have an independent front suspension, a 2.7 liter EcoBoost, a 10-speed transmission. So it's some of the same technology that we're already loving from our Ford family of vehicles. The other advantage for the Bronco is the nostalgia. Uh, if you look in the used market, um, running versions of a Bronco are worth fifty to $100,000, which is kind of insane when you consider the original purchase price was around $2,500. Um, if you had thought of that and purchased them back then, you could have made a crap ton of money by now. 
for me, I was raised in a Ford Bronco. And so there's some nostalgia there of hunting out of a Ford Bronco. And I think Ford has done a great job of building on that brand and building on the legacy of the Bronco. Uh, they came out with, I think it's seven versions of the Bronco. The most exclusive is the first edition. And when the first editions were released, they sold out in the first couple hours that they were offered. When I say it's sold out, there was a reservation line you could get on the internet and reserve a first edition. And we went on there and uh, they broke the internet. You could not get through. But as you may not be surprised to learn, Rush Jacoby has a backup plan. <laughs> we had a team of about 20 people trying to get through. And uh, our group was able to get four first edition uh, reservations, um, which we're pretty proud of. So we have four first edition Broncos coming when they get released. When will that be? So the middle of next year, maybe as early as April. Um, and if there's some delays, they are what they are. I know people get all upset about that. I trust Ford and I know they'll get it right. And when they get it done, they'll get it to us. And the Jacoby family will be wrapping four brand new uh, limited edition, first edition Broncos with all the bells and whistles. And we are excited to be able to provide that experience to our customers. Um, but I'll be honest with you, I'm not going to be sad about driving one of the, well, I think it'll be the first first edition in Northern Arizona. Wow. Good for you. That's fantastic. And then the the Raptor version of the, Bronco, they're going to call him the Warthog. And that'll be a year or two behind the first one. Uh, there's already spy videos on the internet of them testing it. Um, the capability of that Bronco, I mean, we could spend a whole podcast on that, and maybe we should, but they're going to have factory 35 and 37 inch tires. Uh, it's an independent front suspension. Um, it's going to have, you know, trailing arm coils in the back, stuff like that. That's, uh, Really cool technology is going to get up on an awesome ride. It's going to be super capable. There's all kinds of new um, technologies built into it. Some of it's pretty simple stuff that's kind of surprising. You haven't seen it before. Um, I won't go into all of them, but one of the ones that I'm most excited about is on the dash. There's actually a bar on the dash, and it's sort of like a Picatinny rail, and it lets you mount accessories on the dash. I think if you look at the, the dashes of most Hunter's trucks, there's hats laying up there. There's GPSs laying up there. There's radios laying up there. And when you drive around, it's bouncing around and falling on the floor and stuff. And this lets you mount that stuff to the dash in a way that's removable and secure. And that's just really cool technology that once you see it, you're like, why didn't somebody think of that before? Cool stuff. Um, let's talk about some other gear. I know you just ordered a Swarovski 115 millimeter objective lens. <laughs> Um, and any, any other cool gear that you've been messing with? Sure. So the Swarovski 115 is something we're super excited about. Um, to a certain extent, we have to get the latest thing that comes out because you're expected to have it, but we also believe in having that, um, best available technology for our customers. So right now we have COAs and we have two of the BTX 95s. And ordering the 115s to go into our fleet of binoculars and other optics just allows us to have the best available technology. So, you know, 40-something percent greater light gathering capability 
it's obviously going to weigh a little bit more, but we believe that the additional capacity and, and uh, value is worth it. So we're going to add that into the fleet. So super excited to have that mixed in. I can um, tell you, having used the 115 now for about two weeks, as far as a BTX goes, you know, I have the 65 and the 95 for the BTX. And I put the 115 on and from a BTX standpoint, for me, it totally completes the BTX modularity as far as the one thing I like about the 115 BTX is it feels like it really balances well um, compared to some of the others where the BTX eyepiece, you know, is, is fairly heavy, you know, if you will. Um, the match of the size of the 115 objective and then you throw in with the BTX eyepiece, for me, it balances best on the tripod. But then once you actually look in it, I mean, it, 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 I don't know if you've had a chance to look through it yet, but it, it's going to absolutely blow you away. To me, it makes the, you know, I've been using the twin spotter, Swarovski twin 65 millimeters twin spotters. And the only thing I don't like about the BTX is the angled eyepiece, but I can tell you with the 115 objective, complete game changer. To me, it just brings the BTX eyepiece just completely alive. I mean, it's, it's unreal. If, you, if anybody out there listening likes the 95 BTX, you're absolutely going to fall in love with the 115. And, you know, it's seven and a half pounds, um, but, you know, that's a far cry from your Koa's rust that are you know, 13 pounds plus a, 15, you know, 13 yeah. or 14 pound tripod. Yeah. No, we, we've seen through it and we recognize the benefit to it and we're excited to have it. Um, you know, it should be here before sheep season. Um, and so we're excited to have that. Awesome. Uh, cameras, cameras is another one. So Canon, I would say had been lagging behind the industry a little bit on their mirrorless cameras and they prepped the release of their new mirrorless cameras by releasing some amazing new RF lenses. So if you want to think of it this way, Canon historically was the market leader with their L series lenses. And Jay, you and I have both used those for a number of years, but when they were moving to mirrorless technology, they pivoted, they changed from the old style mount to a new style mount. And the new mount is a bigger mount. Um, and there's completely redesigned optical recipes and all the new lenses. The optical elements can be closer to the sensor because you don't have a shutter in interfering in the same way. And it's a bigger diameter mount, which lets them go to bigger glass. So the RF technology is a game changer. I have a full set of RF lenses and cameras on order. They're really hard to get right now. So over the next calendar year, we'll be switching from... Um, our older Canon technology to the newer technology. It's not just cameras and lenses. Um, there's new technology built into the cameras. There's 8K video in there, super high rates of frame. And you're going to look at the, um, the autofocus and be blown away with what the autofocus is able to do. Do you think it's one of those things that they weren't first to market, but almost coming, almost last to market? They'll, they'll be able to take some of the pluses and minuses from, say, some of the other manufacturers and put that into their product. Is that is that your feeling? Absolutely. You know, they took their time and did it what I would call the right way. And in the end, I think they'll be proven to be the best and still the market leader. Um, but, 
you have to hand it to them. If you look at historical companies, um, like computer companies, you know, IBM was the company and they didn't pivot and someone else took the market from them. Uh, Canon has so much momentum behind them. It's hard for a company like that to pivot. They don't pivot as quickly as a newer company with a smaller market share, like someone like Sony. They don't have as much to lose. So they were able to pivot quickly and head down a path. Canon recognized that path, recognized it was real, took the time to really do good engineering behind the principles of their new market offering um, because professional photographers invest so much in their lenses. You're really buying into the lens and the camera is an afterthought. And consumers don't always think that way. We think of camera and then what lens do we use? But they got the lenses right and now they're making the cameras to go with them. And uh, the R5 is my camera choice from Canon. And um, they have their flagship camera available probably next year. And I will be investing in that as well. Tell us about why mirrorless is better than the older technology. So I'm really big on analogies. And I would tell you it's sort of like drum brakes and disc brakes. Um, when you have a mirrorless system, there's no mechanical shutter. So if you don't have mechanical movement, you don't have that vibration. limitation. You don't have vibration and you don't have the limitation of the time it takes for the shutter to move. Mm -hmm. Shutter can only move so fast and you can actually wear shutters out. Um, so the newer technology removes that shutter. It lets you put the lens elements closer to the sensor but it also allows you to do some things electronically that you can't do mechanically. So it gives you some options there. Uh, one of the reasons I think that Canon was slower to market with the mirrorless technology is their professional photographers are very, photographers are very important to them. And professionals don't always switch just with, at a whim. It has to stand up to rigorous professional use and be proven to be a better system before they're going to switch. There's too much at stake for the type of photography that they do. The mirrors technology has advanced to the point where that's now available. Things like the viewfinder early on weren't as good as the viewfinders today. In a DSLR camera, the viewfinder is an actually optical path showing you the same image that the camera is going to see on the sensor. With a mirrorless camera, there's a little tiny computer screen you're looking at. You're not looking at an optical path. You're looking at a display of what the sensor is seeing. And that technology wasn't advanced to the point that it is today. Um, what they're able to do with miniaturizing electronics and displays, just because you want it, doesn't mean that, you, that it can be manufactured and manufactured repeatedly and affordably. And the technology is all coming together. And there's actually quantum leaps forward in the technology that gives consumers and professionals some really awesome new technology. Sounds great. What else you got up your sleeve? Well, I can't tell you all my trade secrets, Jay. <laughs> um, you know, the satellite texting, I know there's several brands out there. Satellite texting has been a game changer for us as far as safety and communication in the backcountry. And I will put out my safety Sally minute on the internet, if we can call it that of uh, if you don't yet have a spot or an inReach or one of the other types of uh, devices available, I strongly encourage you to consider investing in them. And I'll share one or two stories of why I think they're important. 
And if I cry, Jay, I apologize in advance. <laughs> um, we were on the Kaibab, and then we left for a trip to Alaska. And uh, while we were gone, some other people were covering the hunt for us. Um, one of the, the DIY hunters um, had a friend in camp that had a heart attack. And they actually pushed the SS, SOS bus on an inReach. And a helicopter landed and flew that guy to a hospital. If he did not have an inReach and pushed the SOS button, he wouldn't be with us today. So you hear about it on the internet, but it actually happened 100 yards from my camp um, just a month or so ago. So I, I will throw that out there, and I'll tell one other one. Um, I won't share names because of uh, privacy reasons, but one of my past hunters, uh, his daughter needed a liver transplant. And just saying that out loud, Jay, it hits me close to home because I care about my daughter. You know, life goes on. Even when you have a family member that's ill like that, um, he still wanted to be able to participate in his fall hunts. So he reached out to me and he's like, Russ, I got to have a satellite phone or some, some way that I can be in touch She's on the donor list, and if she gets the call, I need to be there. He reached out to me. We loaned him one of our inReach units, and uh, he was able to be there for her liver transplant because he had an inReach. Um, being able to have that kind of connection in the wilderness, you know, those are dramatic examples. Not all of the examples are liver transplants and your hunting partner dying in the field. Um just as important is being able to text um, your wife and check in and go, hey, honey, I miss you and I'm doing okay. Uh, and honestly, most hunters are more likely to use their device in that way. But if you have not yet invested in the technology to text your loved ones from the wilderness, I'm going to use the I word. Can I use the I word, Jay? Yep. You're an idiot. <laughs> you need to have that technology in your backpack. In today's modern world where things happen, it's a safety thing, but it's an also courtesy to your loved ones back home thing. And I just strongly encourage hunters to seriously consider doing that. What is your device of choice? So we have over a dozen units, and the device that I use for all of my hunters is the Garmin InReach Explorer Plus. I find it to be a great combination of uh, cost, performance, capability, which I add up to be good value. Um, we're on the unlimited plan, which costs us 50 bucks a month to text unlimited. And the device's street price is around 450. You can commonly find them on sale for around 400. So it's not free and it adds up, you know, it takes some, some commitment to do it, but it makes a big difference. You know, you I kind of focused on, sorry, Jay. Yep. Nope. Keep going. I kind of focused on uh, the dramatic safety part of it and also the checking in with loved ones part of it. But hunters, maybe this will get them over the edge. Where it is legal to use electronics to stock game or to communicate about the location of game, because I know it's not legal everywhere. It's a great way to stay in contact with your hunters. Um, we're in the field and we've got guides checking cameras in one location, hunter in one location, guide in another location. We come across the target critter. We're able to communicate no matter where we're at. 
And having that capability to communicate when you lose cell signal is a game changer. It really, really makes a difference. It promotes conservation. When we're on the Kaibab, I can reach out to law enforcement and report issues when we see them. Um, I can reach out to law enforcement and we can get permission to fill water tanks. It's a big part of that water hauling that we do. But it's also a big part of the volunteerism that we do. You know, we guide a large number of donated hunts for sportsmen and uh, children with life-threatening illnesses. When we have a hunter that gives up on a hunt or their schedule changes and we find out about it, I can quickly and remotely reach out to the agencies, get a tag transferred, and get a hunter up there and take advantage of those seasons where a day or two can make the difference between success or failure on those hunts. So we've actually harvested bison um, on a donated tag that we would not have been able to do before in-reach technology. Have they gotten the technology where they can send photos uh, from device to device yet? So the technology is not mainstream. Um, it's possible to do through satellites, but like the in-reaches are not sending uh, photographs yet. Um, I think consumers need to understand a little bit about what's going on behind the scenes. You know, when you've got that plastic device in your hand, it's just magic to you. But there's actually an internet connection through a satellite, if you will, think of it that way, where that data has got to get transmitted through a satellite and so forth. What you're paying for at 50 bucks a month is text data packets. When you get a bigger data plan, you're putting more load on that system. They need more satellites. The costs are going to be different. So one of the reasons you're not seeing that yet is the certain size of the system and the capability of the system and the costs associated with it. So if you're willing to pay the coin, you could do it today, but uh, it hasn't hit mainstream in the same way that in-reach texting has. Makes sense. What about the mini? So the mini is really popular with a lot of hunters. Um, we had about 10 minis when we first started and we had a high failure rate with the minis. The minis don't have the same capability that the Explorer Plus has. So for us, we've standardized on Explorer Pluses. We feel like it's a more robust unit and it has the additional capability. Uh, there is a weight penalty there, but we feel like that weight penalty is worthwhile for this device. And with the new operation in Alaska, it's probably safe to say you're going to have 50 of them here pretty soon. We are ordering them by the dozens and um, we will be using the in-reaches there. Um, I will share a little bit of information about Alaska where we're trying to go with that. And I will also throw out there that I'm open to suggestions. You know, we've been very successful in the business that we're running here in Arizona. When I started doing this, people told me it wouldn't work. And I'm happy to say we proved them wrong. And what we're trying to do is the same kind of operation we do here, just in a different state. So we're going to offer the DIY person a quality experience in Alaska supported with a network of resources that they won't be able to do on their own, um, either for availability or cost reasons. Um, for our outfitted hunters, we're going to try to shake up the industry with offering uh, even better service at um, what I consider to be a better value. So look for, uh, for hunts that are 
are going to be very competitive. And I'll just say it that way. I believe that I'm good at solving problems because of my engineering background. So we're going to try to set up systems that make it easier for hunters to come there. You know, I understand sportsmen like me. And one of the obstacles to going there is cost. But another obstacle is the equipment and just knowing where to get started. We've been successful on the Kaibab by providing the specialized equipment you need for bison to the hunters. We're going to do that same thing in Alaska. So it doesn't require a huge cash outlay in equipment for you to come and participate in the hunts there. We're going to provide the specialized equipment that you need in Alaska so you don't have to purchase it or bring it with you. I personally don't think it makes sense to haul so many firearms, bedrolls, inreaches, and sidearms and waders to Alaska when everyone that gets there needs the same thing. So we're going to have a very uh, good program that provides that equipment to hunters, which means your travel is going to be a lot easier than it was in the past. And your quality of the gear and the quality of the experience that you have there is going to be a little easier to do and better quality than we might get today. Makes total sense. Let's shift gears real fast uh, and then I'll let you go. Uh, sheep season. I know it's always in the back of your mind as it is mine. Um, what do you have up your sleeve this year as far as uh, sheep hunters or units or places you're headed? Well, I don't want to share all my secrets, but we will um, be doing a Rocky hunt that we're going to focus on. Um, here for our sheep season is the main hunt that we're going to focus on. Um, we are not going after as many uh, sheep hunts this year. We do have some bandwidth for sheep hunts. Uh, we tend to get a lot of hunters last minute for some of the more difficult units after they've done some scouting and realized it's pretty hard. Um, but we have some stuff planned for what we're doing north, and we need to keep some of our bandwidth available to do to do what we're going to do up there. So we're going to do some wintertime activities up there that are going to consume some of our resources. Makes sense. Buddy, it's always great having you on the podcast. I want to give you a chance, any final thoughts, uh, concluding thoughts, uh, or anything else that uh, we didn't talk about, give you a chance to uh, do that and then uh, shake you loose. So I appreciate you coming on and spending time with us. Well, we don't talk about COVID or politics on the podcast, but I will throw this out there. Last time I che still checked, last time I checked, we still live in the United States of America. And I would encourage every one of your listeners to get out and vote. Um, this is probably one of the most important elections that I've seen in my adult lifetime. And I think I know how you want it to turn out and how I want it to turn out. And uh, it's going to affect future generations. So get out and vote. Um, you know, I won't weigh in on the whole mask controversy, if I can use that term. But, uh, you know, we are Americans and we have freedoms. And I think we need to exercise those freedoms. But we also need to be sensitive to um, not everyone thinks or believes the way that we do. And where you can avoid conflict without giving up your personal self-worth, I think that that's important. Um, our country is divided, and we all need to extend an olive branch and help to heal that divide. If we don't, um, I think we're headed in a negative direction. So I, I won't say more than that other than get out and participate and make a difference. Um, 
There's simple things you do can do in your community, like hauling water, um, mentoring another sportsman, um, going and meeting your neighbor, just some simple things. You know, it doesn't take earth shattering stuff to make a difference in the world that we all live in. So go make a difference somewhere, but get out and vote and call your buddy up, your hunting buddy. Chances are he may not be registered. Get him registered and get him voting too, because every vote counts. Very well said. Uh, Russ, how can guys get a hold of you? How can they follow along with what you're doing? So I'll give you my email and my phone number, and I encourage people to use that. Recognize that we are in the wilderness a lot. If I don't call you back, it's because I did not get the message. Uh, please reach out to me again. The number is 928-814-9622. And the email is coyote, C-O-Y. O-T-E, Rustler, R-U-S-T-L-E-R, at gmail.com. And you can also find me on Facebook. Um, we're pretty busy people. I can't be on all the social media platforms. Uh, there's a, a media page on Facebook for Arizona Bison Hunting. So I'm on that forum um, and my personal page on Facebook the most because uh, that's where a lot of our client base is at. But uh, I'm being told that I need to spend more time on Instagram. So when I get my, my fancy new camera, I guess I'm going to have to spend more time over there as well. <laughs> I always enjoy your Facebook posts so in-depth. And um, it's always great talking to you. Uh, we're going to have to do it again and do it again soon. So uh, thanks for sharing all your knowledge and pouring out uh, all, of, all of everything that's inside that brain of yours. We just got a little glimpse of it. And um, I appreciate that. Jay, it's, uh, it's always good to talk to you. I hope we get to share a meal over a campfire when we can have them again. In the <laughs> yeah. meantime, I hope we're able to glass a sheep mountain with you before the end of the year. Sounds great, buddy. God bless. You too. Have a great day. Okay.